This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. They published the Kratom Genome, and my guests today are two scientists who worked on it, Julia Bros and Dr. Robin Buell from the Department of Plant Biology, Michigan State University. Thanks a lot for uh, joining me on this. We are excited to see that the Kratom Genome has been published. So I guess if you want to go ahead and um, introduce yourselves and just explain generally what you do, and then we can get into the paper. All right, I'm gonna let I'm gonna let Julia go first. Oh, okay. I That's always exciting. let Julia go first. She's a student. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So hi, my name is Julia Bros. I am a second year grad student in Robin Buell's lab. Um, I'm interested in genomics and biochemistry. So Kratom is the perfect combination between the two. And I really enjoyed working on this project. Awesome, awesome. And Dr. Um, Buell? Yeah, I'm Robin Buell. I'm a faculty member here at Michigan State University. I've been doing plant genomics and genetics since 1999. Um, I've focused on working on a variety of crop plants like rice, potatoes, sweet potato, but I've also worked on a whole set of medicinal plants. And some of those include Madagascar periwinkle, which is a source of an anti-cancer drug. I've also worked on a lot of mint species and um, I've been working on Kratom now for the last few years in collaboration with several biochemists. And what made you want to uh, study Kratom specifically? Julia, I'm always oh, going to let you me. go first. <laughs> okay, I'll always go Anybody first. Anybody jump in. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's the easiest thing and I can always just add commentary because I, I want Julia to get credit. This is her paper. Yeah. That's okay. So I think the reason why I started working on Kratom is because of the biochemistry background. Um, it has a lot of very interesting metabolites like mitragyne, which is obviously what the community is really interested in right now. And this was a project that was near its completion and it needed a final push. And I was really happy that I could have the opportunity to do it. So it was good timing on all parts. So awesome. so I'll add that, so we started with this project with Kratom because we were interested in several plant species that are in this family known as the coffee family because they produce alkaloids. So our collaborators, two biochemists are very interested in alkaloids. And so this Kratom produces a really interesting set of alkaloids. And so this is the one that was chosen um, to look at clearly because you know it has it clearly has human health uh, uh, effects. Mm -hmm. And so just in general, I, I'm just going to go from like a really basic, uh, standpoint. And so it, it says, you know, you report on the draft genome sequence and annotation of Mitragynus speciosa. Um, could you explain just in general, what, uh, is it called mapping a genome or, or kind of what, what that is? Okay, so a genome is essentially all of the contents in a single chromosome. So th what this paper does is we took DNA and then we isolated it and then you assemble it. So you take all of these little pieces and you want to put it together 
which leads to some problems because it is a complicated process. But that's essentially what you're doing is you're taking all of the genetic information and then making it into one representation of the genetic components. So maybe for other people in your audience, think of it as the blueprints, right? So mm -hmm. the genome is essentially the blueprint for how a kratom grows and develops, right? And makes these interesting compounds that people are interested in. So it's just, it's just the guidebook for how, 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 it, how a cell works and how it makes these molecules. Yeah, yeah, and I definitely want to get into, you know, what, where this knowledge that you guys, you know, discovered is going to take us and, and what, and, but I want to kind of go through the process and then, okay, so we were talking about the family that it's in, and this paper is really nice, so I'm going to link to it, and I, th I think it's open access, and I don't think I got it through my school, but, yeah. No, yeah. it's open access, yeah. it's open access. Awesome. Uh, and it has a nice little uh, diagram there of the Ruba, Rubicae family? Ru Rubiaceae. Rubiaceae. Yeah. Uh, I keep saying Rubicae as I read it, and then I <laughs> looked it up, and I didn't memorize how to pronounce it, but <laughs> Rubiaceae. So, um, and you talked about the Rubiaceae family, and there, it also contains cacao, which makes chocolate, wine grapes, tomatoes. Oh, no, I think, I think, yeah, 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 coffee. yeah, no, yeah, and chinchona, like quinine, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, is is Kratom, a, like, I mean, obviously it's unique, but, but is it more unique than the other plants in, in this? And, it, like, a lot of these are consumable uh, things that, that we all, Kratom's uh, related to the coffee plant. Um, its effects are sort of similar and in, in, in just kind of what they do to the body. It's kind of like something you have in the morning if you take a nice light dose of it and... Uh, I guess just uh, if, if there's anything interesting that you want to talk about, just about the Rubiaceae family. Actually, Brian, I can't believe I didn't catch this mistake. Cacao is not in the Rubiaceae, yet it's in our paper that it says it is. It produces alkaloids, though. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that's a mistake on, on our part. I can't believe I didn't catch this. <laughs> Where is that? That's in the introduction. Yeah. It's the on the chart, family. too. It's in... Yeah, coffee I think it's just is. coffee is, but yeah. just the way it's written. Yeah, yeah, it's the no, way it's not thermoroma. Yeah, yeah, it's Cacao. not though. poorly written the way it's written, right? Because it's a, that sentence is supposed to be talking about really important alkaloids, right? Which yeah. are the chemicals of interest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But coffee also makes alkaloids. Yes, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Caffeine's uh, yeah, it's it's um, <laughs> cacao, the chocolate. Is outside of the Rubiaceae, but coffee yeah. is within the Rubiaceae. Yeah, and they're both producing alkaloids. So, okay, so the whole process of studying this, um, you have, a, uh, I'm sure you're in plant biology at Michigan State. I'm sure you have a ton of greenhouses, but you have one that has uh, uh, kratom trees growing in it. Mm -hmm. And these are uh, rye fat trees um, that you got from World Seed Supply. Um, mm -hmm. and you kept them at a certain temperature and a certain amount of light. And um, this specific tree was named for Claude Rifat, who was kind of like one of these uh, 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 ethno uh, ethnobotanist type of guys. And um, are, do you know if these are the same strain that are grown in uh, Indonesia that most people in the West consume 
and Kratom products. Julia, you want to answer? You want me to answer this one? Um, you may answer this because okay. I wasn't here when we got the plants. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. So that's an excellent question, right? Because you just order these things online and they say, I call it riff it. I don't know if Maybe. that's right. Yeah. Or, they, or it's called bumblebee or we actually ordered some other ones and they just say Indonesia or Malaysia. So to be honest, you have no idea what you're getting, right? Mm -hmm. you, you have absolutely no idea. Um, it could be the exact same plant, right? So that you're going to get the exact same genetic makeup um, as, say, the dried leaves that, that people are purchasing. Um, and it may not. But that's not a unique feature of Kratom, right? Other plants, you know, uh, you just order them from a nursery or you buy them. And they don't always have to be completely identical to what the name is. Are, are the trees still uh, growing there or are they going to be uh, like subject to future studies or? So um, I'm actually leaving Michigan State University. I'm not taking it with me. Um, uh, the one we sequenced actually died. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it died in our greenhouse. But we have a second plant we ordered at the exact same time from the exact same nursery. And that's going to stay here with my collaborator. Cool. Cool. And. I, I was talking to I, uh, Dr. Sharma from University of Florida, and and he studied the alkaloids, so it's a little dif yeah. different. And the age of the tree seems mm -hmm. to affect the alkaloids, and mm -hmm. and even like where they grow native, uh, they're different mm -hmm. in Thailand, Malaysia, Philippines. How how old was the tree, and and does does that have any effect on what comes out when you look at the with you look at the, the genetic? Julia, you answer. So I'm not sure how old the tree was when we collected the tissue probably one year old from the nursery yeah. so maybe it was two years old by the time we isolated the dna okay but that shouldn't affect the genome at all like whether yeah. you get it from an old plant or a young plant you're going to have the same genome because this is like robin said earlier the mm. blueprint to the plant Okay, so the one part says uh, you you had immature leaves, mature leaves, leaf bracts, root stems. Um, so why is it important to have all these materials um, and to to look at instead of just maybe just one part of the plant? So all of these different tissue types were used um, a little bit differently than the um, whole genome sequencing. This was for RNA sequencing, which is for expressed genes only. And this was used to create the annotation. So to decide which genes are active or what do you even call a gene in this genome, that's the whole point of annotation. And that's what we did with those tissues. And then we also used that to map back onto the genome to see how much of these proteins are actually found in the genome so and there was a section called genome assembly and scaffold filtering uh, so what is what is a scaffold even in in genomics or genetics or so a scaffold is a grouping of sequencing that when you assemble it you're not really sure where everything goes because you have all of these different parts but with this 10x library, you're able to link different regions together. And so those would be called contacts. And then you can further link them together to form these scaffolds, which are not whole chromosome length, 
sequencing. They're smaller than that. So that's what a scaffold is. Just a, a larger section of DNA. And then I'm just kind of going by sections. And then you do like a quality assessment. Is that just kind of to check everything, make sure it's it, everything checks out? Yeah, it's to make yeah. sure that what we're assembling is actually reasonable and the lengths make sense and that you're getting, you don't have anything erroneous in the assembly. So yeah, it's just a good way to check. Cool. And then like gene annotation, that's basically, what what is that part? So that part is when you take all of your different um like RNA-seq data, which provides you information on which genes are expressed. And then you use different models to model which genes are actually there, if that makes sense. So yeah. you're taking this data and then which proteins are expressed, and then you want to know which of these are actually real. And that's how you annotate it. So you have a collection of RNA-seq. Cool. So, so if you wanted yeah. to, I, I always like to use this example um, and people can understand, understand it. So imagine if you took all the words from Dr. Seuss's The Cat in the Hat and you put all the words together with no spaces and no capitalization and no punctuation, right? And then, so you, you wouldn't be able to read what, what the book was, right? Because you have just 26 letters in a string. Yeah. And so what we do when we do annotation is we want to understand what that DNA sequence is telling the plant. So those are in little packets of information called genes. And so think of the annotation processes as taking all the letters for the entire cat in the hat that have been squished together and then making sentences out of that by adding a capital uh, letter, a space in between the words, and then a punctuation. Cool. That's a great way to explain it. I, I like that. That was yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah, because I'm like, I kind of know what this stuff is, but I, I, I'm like, you know, kindergarten when it comes to this stuff. No, <laughs> so. you're doing, I think you're doing great. I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting to me. It's just one of those, it's yeah. one of those papers, like, sometimes I can understand, some, you know, I'm just all learning this stuff, and, and it's kind of, it kind of works out for the podcast, because people are learning with me. Then we get into monoterpene, indole, alkaloid, biosynthetic pathway, an alkaloid biosynthetic pathway, what, what is that? So these are all of the different steps it takes to make this final product. So like mitragyny isn't just formed through one step. It's part of a pathway, a larger part of it. So this like indole, uh, mondo, monoterpene indole alkaloid biosynthetic pathway has many, many genes, which then code enzymes, which then have a special function to create this novel product. Mm -hmm. I definitely understand that. I'm starting to understand about the metabolism and stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess that information in general, you know, will show you how the actual substance works when somebody takes it, you know, so maybe, you know... Like a practical application would be, if you understand that, then you might know, 
uh, if somebody has a certain condition, you know, you might not be able, you might not be able to take this medicine as based on how it metabolizes in the liver. Um, is that accurate? I, I would say it is, but it's in reverse, right? Mm-hmm. So you're used to having the final compound, and then you figure out what it does in the human. Think of it as how that how did that compound get started, right? And we use similar techniques to figure out how how the compound was actually synthesized. So you're interested in what happens to it once it gets into a human. We're interested in how did the plant actually make it from scratch, right? Because the plant had to make it from scratch. Yeah, yeah. And alkaloids in plants in general, um, you know, we think of them as like, oh, caffeine makes me feel good and uh, kratom tea <laughs> makes me feel good. But they, they they actually have a function in the plants, yes. don't they? Yes, yes. I, I know some of them. I know in tobacco, nicotine acts as a pesticide, I think, against uh, mites mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. It, it, do we know what the uh, kratom alkaloids act as or even coffee? or? I don't. I don't think it's new. I don't, I haven't mm-hmm. read anything about it. Yeah. 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 I've so heard. we know that most of these like secondary metabolites do have a defense. Yeah. Uh, some sort of defense compound yeah. like yeah. suggestion. Shin. Yeah. Yeah. So, so another one that, that, that it's a mon, it's this, it's in the similar, same class of mon, uh, monoterpene indole alkaloid is camptothecin. And that's also another anti-cancer drug. And it's made by this plant called Camptotheca. And that, that compound actually inhibits um, this enzyme called DNA topoisomerase. So your DNA is all wound up into a helix and you have to unwind it to do things with your own DNA. And so that compound is produced. And so if insects or animals eat Camptotheca, right, it, it actually is, is quite deleterious to, to them. But the plant actually has a mutation in its own DNA topoisomerase, so it's um, immune to it. So, so they're most likely functioning in defense, but we just don't know what what exact insect or animal or something. Yeah, could it, could could it be a fungicide too? I think um, I had Doctor Prajelic who who's done some kratom studies on, and he said we think it might be a fungicide, but we don't know. He also said we yeah, don't know. Yeah, I, I I don't think people really know for sure. But, yeah. Um, and in kratom's kind of a new thing that's just being studied. Is that? I mean, I know there are studies going back, uh, you know, when they first discovered it uh, in the east. Um, is it like a relatively new plant that's being studied? So I think on our end, it's relatively new. If you look at most of the studies that we've cited in this paper, they're all within the past what. 20 years. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think the funding for it is new is what's changing. And, you know, funding drives research. So if there's more funding, there'd be more research. Yeah. But, but I think there's quite a long history of its use, right? As mm-hmm. a herbal remedy. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so there's yeah. definitely been uh, studies on it, uh, but not necessarily in modern uh, scientific labs. <laughs> or in the Western world. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's important to know, right? We're mm-hmm. looking at it because it's already been established or in a culture. So the question is, is can we use, as you said, modern methods and then definitively identify what the effects of it is? Yeah. 
I'm going to read from the study again. It, it, it uh, demonstrated that um, uh, M. speciosa is a, a tetraploid and has conserved Loki involved in specialized metabolisms that can be harnessed to identify Loki involved in monoterpene indole alkaloid biosynthesis. Yes, I got through that. But uh, terploid, it, does it mean it has four sets of chromosomes? Yes. So tetraploid yes. is you have four sets of chromosomes. Yeah. So for yeah. reference, we're diploid, and kratom has double what we have. Uh, of humans. Yeah. Yeah, we're diploids. They're tetraploids. And, and what what does conserved Loki mean? So conserved loci means that loci. there are these. You have um, genes that are conserved between the duplication and with other species is what we're referring to in this monoterpenoid alkaloid statement, I believe. I'll just, I'll just add a, a commentary that, you know, in, in the biosynthetic pathway, the first steps will be quite conserved with other plants because I believe every land plant produces monoterpenes. But then those... Um, once you make what we would call the scaffold, the core part of the molecule, that's going to be conserved. But then the rest is going to be um, unique to Kratom to some extent. Yeah. And it contains 72 clusters of specialized metabolism genes, which will aid in improving our understanding of the evolution of plant specialized metabolic pathways. <clears throat> and that means with plants in general, right? That doesn't just mean with the Kratom plant. So this analysis was done using this planty smash program, which predicts metabolic clusters. So it's not necessarily saying that these are the active clusters possible. You would obviously need some like experimental evidence that this is what's actually mm -hmm. going on and that the genes identified in this planty smash are doing those activities. Um, so I think you have to consider that these might not actually be present. I mean, they should have alkaloids and like cytochrome P450s, but it's not necessarily that these ones predicted are actually doing the activity. Right. So let me, let me just add, so, so these types of enzymes that do what we'll call the decoration, right, are the tailoring enzymes. There's, there's hundreds of genes in, in Kratom, in all plants, that have this generalized function. And you just sort of have to figure out which one is doing which step. So it's a bit of a fishing expedition to figure out exactly which one. So um, in the paragraph above, where yeah. there's a supplementary table S6, that contains all of these different genes that could possibly have these MIA be part of the monoterpene indole alkaloid pathway but because when you look at these genes some of them can be very similar and you're not sure which one actually has the activity until you go test it that's cool and and i was just going to get into kind of like what kind of this knowledge is going to have how it's going to be practically applied because it looks like i mean kratom's going to become uh, medicine it's the popularity of it and if it's if the 
demand's going to increase. There's probably going to be a domestic uh, agriculture for it, which it's going to have to uh, rely, I think, on plant biology because it doesn't grow in you know the regions that are most of the United States. But um, so I, I mean, there's one like in the specific question I had is like uh, you talked about uh, bioactive alkaloids and and heterologous hosts. So what? And I looked up like heterologous expression, and and how how does that work in in the science? So the idea is much like how insulin is now produced, where you put it into yeast, you can now make insulin without actually needing to isolate it from an animal. And the idea with this is that you could take the genes involved in the pathway and then put it into a vector that's not even a plant and then produce these without needing to have these um, kratom plants or to grow them agriculturally because you could put them into something else. Yeah. So you could actually just, you could actually just grow the alkaloids like. Well, you could produce them in a plasmid vector. So you could take each individual enzyme of the pathway or you could feed it certain um, metabolic products along the way. And then you could have the end product created by not a plant, but through this vector. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. That is cool. Uh, so understanding the biosynthesis of the bioactive alkaloids, um, and it talks about um, enabling more precise pharmacological studies on the positive or negative outcomes of this medicinal plant and eventually inform breeding and production strategies for this species. So that would be like the other path of, uh, you know, learning more about how the plant grows. So you could target certain genes or breed, like you discover, oh, this variety has like a higher um, mitragyny like content. So maybe you select on those to breed further, I think it provides you with that. So, so Brian, just back to your other question about what you would do with this genome, and your other question is, is, is the rifid, we're growing the same rifid that's being produced. So now that we have the genome, you can do this essentially genotyping. You know, it's very similar to 23andMe, right? We could see yeah. whether or not all the rifids, like, let's say I bought a rifid from like 10 different nurseries online. Are they all the same, right? So once you have the genome, that'll help you figure out whether or not everything's the same or not. And then you can also figure out if they're different, say like we also have this accession called bumblebee, right? If they're different and they're different genetically, are they different in their alkaloid profiles, right? Mm-hmm. And um, this breeding aspect, so I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but opium poppy has been bred to have different opioid profiles. Mm. So some, some poppy cultivars would produce high amounts of morphine, some may produce high amounts of codeine, some may produce Mm. this noscopamine. So you can breed and select for unique profiles of your target compound. Yeah, and I'm sure uh, like our audience is familiar with, you know, there's one plant you can grow in pretty much every state that produces CBD and the other uh, hemp plant, you know, produces uh, marijuana. So that's kind of, I guess that's kind of the same. Is that mm-hmm. similar? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Is, was there anything else on this paper specifically you want to talk about or? No, I just think, I think it's a good resource for the community. Definitely. And, and I'm just looking at your um, lab and just, just plant science in general, like you're doing work on potatoes and, and all kinds of stuff, beans and, and um, you're talking about like drought tolerance and corn and mm-hmm. um, stuff like that. I used to be, I was a farmer for seven years. So you kind of have to be a, a bit of a plant scientist when you're a farmer because your livelihood <laughs> depends on it. But um, can you just talk about like that a little bit? Like what does plant science do? Does it help uh, increase yields or, or grow more drought tolerant food crops or... I mean, I'm sure it does all that. Um, so, so you want an answer in terms of like my lab specifically, what I've been yeah, doing? Yeah, sure. Or just, yeah, yeah. So, so um, I'd say, and you're you're interested in this bean work, so maybe I'll just talk just just about that bean work. So, so uh, common bean, right? Which is like uh, pinto bean, kidney bean, black beans, navy beans. Um, they're very susceptible to high nighttime temperature. And so with climate change, that'll have a big impact, especially in developing countries on their bean yields. And, you know, that's that's their protein source, right? They don't eat meat, they, they eat beans. But, you know, because of uh, evolution and adaptation, there's a sister species, a very close relative of common bean that, that evolved in the Sonoran Desert, which is obviously hot and dry. And so we studied its relative, it's called temporary bean, because it can grow in really high, hot conditions. And we wanted to ask what's in its genome and can that give us clues as to how it can deal with hot and dry conditions? Because if we can understand those, then maybe we can focus on bringing those traits into common bean and making common bean heat and drought tolerant. Wow, that's pretty cool. Like it, it's, it's. Yeah. We started a started a small farm with my ex wife at the at the time when, uh, uh, you know, the kind of organic farming was uh, was big, and a lot of people kept asking me if the seeds were GMO or they GMO, and I'm like, I I don't know what that means. And then I looked into it. I'm like, that's it's actually really cool. <laughs> I'm supposed to be like there was a kind of like against GMO thing. I mean, do, do you have any thoughts about that? Like, I know there's a section on gene editing and and uh, there, mm-hmm. there's kind of I think there's a lot of misinformation about what's actually occurring there. I'll let Julia comment as a young person on GMOs. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Well, I think it comes down to what you consider as a genetic modification because we've had years and years of breeding and domestication, and that's significantly altering the um, genetics of an organism. Mm -hmm. So if you consider that genetic modification, like everybody's doing it, that's how we survive. Yeah. But introducing different um, genes from like foreign you call them foreign DNA into a plant for some novel effect or pesticide resistance. You know, at the end of the day, I think that if you're going to feed people, you need to feed people. And that's what it comes down to. And science allows us to feed more people and to adapt to what's going to happen in the future with our climate. So... You, you, 
Absolutely. There's a point where you need these things and science allows us to do it. So we should invest time in that and consider doing it. That was Kratom Genomics. Thank you, Julia Bros and Dr. Robin Buell from Michigan State University Department of Plant Biology. The music is Risey. The song is Memories of Thailand. The Kratom Science Podcast is written and produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Please like, subscribe, review, and take care.